Hey everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today I have with me a special guest, Dr. David Gustafson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kirk. It's great to be here. Dr. Gustafson is Associate Professor of Evangelism and Missional Ministry, as well as Chair of the Mission and Evangelism Department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And so he was teaching there uh, when I was doing my MDiv there, I know, and uh, he is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Free Church of America, a former pastor of two EFCA churches, that's Evangelical Free Church of America, and he currently serves on the EFCA's Board of Ministerial Standing. Uh, Dr. Gustafson's areas of expertise include evangelism, EFCA uh, history, the missional practice, and more. Uh, His books include Gospel Witness, Evangelism in Word and Deed, Missional Disciple Making, and Gospel Witness Through the Ages, A History of Evangelism. And he's one of the authors of the book, Great is Thy Faithfulness, The Trinity Story, A History of uh, Trinity International University. And he has a forthcoming book, part of a trilogy for the EFCA. There is Evangelical Convictions, which is already out in a second edition that details the uh, theology of the EFCA. There should be a volume, I believe, on Evangelical Unity, sort of a theological triage and what the EFCA calls the significance of silence. And then um, you are authoring a book that I believe will be called Evangelical Heritage, or at least something along those lines, detailing more the history of the denomination. Is that correct? That is correct. And that is the uh, the working title. Great. And so that's what we're going to be discussing today. I'm hoping that this podcast is our church, um, as I speak right now, um, recently voted to join the EFCA, and we will be presumably received into the EFCA by our district conference, the Forest Lake District. That will be on April 24th, 2023. I'm hoping that this podcast can serve um, our church to just help them understand a little bit more about the movement, about the history of the denomination, um, as well as, I suppose, anyone else outside of our church who happens to listen to this, um, that maybe other folks in the EFCA or people who are interested in the EFCA can benefit from this as well. And so let's start off just by understanding some of the terminology. Um, What is the EFCA? What do we mean by the EFCA? What's kind of a basic definition or description of this group? Yeah, well, we are a family of uh, evangelical churches uh, here in the United States, and that's uh, about 1,500 congregations. So some of those would be still kind of in a church plant, but and those numbers uh, are a little bit hard to always pin down, but uh, the average, you know, sort of round number is between probably 1,500 and 1,600 uh, right now. Uh, we are historically in the Protestant um, evangelical tradition, and so uh, part of the Reformation, we would hold on to an, a number of the solas of the Reformation, a high view of Scripture, uh, a sense of the need to be, you know, born of God, uh, to be converted. So those are uh, kind of, you know, classic um, ideas. In our name, we have both evangelical and free. And with evangelical, there's a, a commitment to the evangel or the euangelion is a fancy Greek, you know, the Greek word uh, where mm-hmm. our word uh, evangelical comes from or evangel. And so we, we believe in the gospel. That's uh, the best way to talk about that. 
uh, going back to the Protestant Reformation and the commitment to the the gospel itself, the evangel. And we've really kind of followed too, I, not followed, but we are descendants of that movement that would identify with uh, the gospel, gospel proclamation, the need to be transformed by the gospel. So, so that's why we've maintained that word. Um, that word has gone through, you know, different uh, phases. Uh, but we would uh, coming, especially well into the the nineteenth and into the twentieth century. Now the twenty first century, we would identify with the broader American evangelical movement too. So that's kind of that evangelical side. Um, the free is a little bit perplexing because <laughs> in America, technically there is a separation of church and state, but in Scandinavia. Uh, free churches meant any religious body that was not the authorized uh, church, which would have been the, the Lutheran church after the, the Protestant Reformation. So that is somewhat meaningless uh, here in terms of of the, the difference between the state and being free of the state or independent, which would have been the meaning in Europe. But here it was basically meaning we weren't necessarily uh, a particular denomination. So in the American context, there was a, an issue of, of being somewhat independent or free from a particular um, sort of sectarian way of thinking or uh, you know, doing church. So we weren't necessarily Lutheran, we weren't necessarily Baptist or Methodist. Um, so mm -hmm. it, it had more of a, an identity of being purely Christian and centered around the gospel. Yeah. So when folks hear the, the 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 evangelical and evangelical free, that refers to uh, gospel believing, um, the, the centered in the death and resurrection of Christ, the message of salvation through faith in Him. And and of course, there are many people who believe that message outside of the EFCA. But the EFCA is saying that is one of our um, identifiers. And then the yeah. free, at least originally. And in some of its more European counterparts, because there are free yeah. denominations in Europe, it refers to kind of a, a church that is distinct from the state church. So not like an institutional church, as in like the state church, but meant to be a separate independent, which a separate independent church, which is a little bit different than in the United States, as you said, since we don't really have a state church anyways. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So so definitely um, had a, an identity that was other than uh, the state church, seeing some problems with kind of classical Christendom. And so they were already beginning to kind of loosen their ties they, they had. I mean, you, you kind of have an interesting relationship uh, in the, the Scandinavian context, especially. And that's really where uh, the it was a, it was a mi migrant church, so immigrants who came here from Scandinavia, mostly in the 19th century. For Swedes, they're peaking the 1880s. For Norwegians, the 1890s, maybe some Danes a little bit after that. So you have these waves coming. They're coming out of the state, the state church context. They are identifying more as free from the state. And there's a number of things, reasons for that. And they come here. So very much an immigrant church to begin with. Uh, we've really, uh, and there's a history of us kind of growing out of that immigrant experience, but yet that immigrant experience also has made us um, really who we are. And we have a lot to offer, I think, 
for new immigrants. And so that's actually part of the history that I'm going to be writing about, kind of mm. the immigrant experience um, coming uh, here from Europe. But uh, we've been receiving uh, people from other places uh, over the past uh, 40, 50 years as well. So we are uh, a little different than what we had started out with, primarily Scandinavian. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. But in the reading that I've done, I, I've done, obviously I haven't read your book since it's not out yet, but I've read mm -hmm. some of the church histories of the ESA that are currently published. Mm -hmm. And it is very much, at least as those books articulate, that the EFCA is this sort of reaction to some of the things in the state church, maybe sort of a dead orthodoxy. Because um, mm -hmm. when you have a state church, at least as it was practiced in Scandinavia, oftentimes it was, you know, everyone was just kind of de, de facto a part of the church, which means that you didn't necessarily have a regenerate um, mm -hmm. believing church. You had just kind of whoever was a part of the state was a part of the church. And so really reacting to that, that kind of brings us to the second section of questions I want to talk to you about, which is really the Scandinavian origins of the EFCA. Mm -hmm. Now, there are mm -hmm. other free church denominations in other countries and such, but at least the free church in America finds its primary origins in Scandinavia. Um, mm -hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit about those origins, the Scandinavian origin origins? Yeah. Yeah. Just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying. So the original vision, um, and really this would be part of European Christendom, and that's a fancy word for kind of the government is embracing a particular uh, form of Christianity and affirming that. And with that, there was often a vision for being a Christian uh, country and having Christian citizens. And with that, there also came a an intention to catechize, you know, or disciple to teach um, all the, the children and, you know, all the people of the population. So that was very much a part of the agenda. And with that, there's real benefit. So the, the benefit is uh, if you had, and they used in Scandinavia, Luther's catechism. Uh, so if you're familiar with Luther's catechism, you're memorizing uh, the Ten Commandments. You're memorizing the Apostles' Creed. You're memorizing uh, the Lord's Prayer. So every good citizen of of scandinavia could do those which was formative in terms of their understanding of the law of grace uh, summarized uh in the apostles creed which i think is a summary of the gospel and uh you know there's something about prayer as a response to that so everybody's being catechized so to speak but not everybody is being is a follower of jesus a believer in and so whenever you have that that setting as, as you talked about yeah there's there's a lot of nominal christians people who which means you're a christian in name only so it's like a cultural identity with christianity and not necessarily a convictional personal volitional identity with with uh, christianity and so it'll it'll be this this group um you can call them pietists uh there's a readers movement they're reading the bible Eventually, they'll be known as mission friends because they are about sharing the gospel with others and going to other places of the world. So you can imagine there's there's those that have the real conviction about what it means to be a Christian. And quite frankly, you're running into all kinds of people who would say they're a Christian, 
But uh, according to the biblical definition of, you know, being regenerate, uh, being born of God, uh, being justified by grace through faith, you know, having that assurance, not everybody is there. And so that's one of the reasons why they start to to divide. So uh, priests of the Lutheran church, the state church, uh, were much like, or could be, you know, like postal workers, meaning they were federal employees. You know, they had a particular role mm -hmm. to play, which had a, a sacred side, but it also had a secular side. So they kept the census, you know, they kept records of births, and deaths, baptisms. So they had an important role to play um, in, in the civil affairs of the state as well. But you can imagine some uh, people entered the priesthood uh, really not knowing Jesus or having a, a real desire to uh, live a, a Christ-centered life. And so you had a, a number of employees, so to speak, of the church who might be a priest and trained, but nonetheless, not a, not a real devout Jesus follower. And so those that were more uh, devout Jesus followers, these what we'd call more pietistic types, a uh, holiness oriented, you know, uh, have a real conviction about what it means to be a Christ follower. They started to, uh, you know, to meet in, in separate uh, places, you know, we might call them small groups or house meetings, conventicles, those kinds of things. So they started to do that. And uh, it's understandable why they would, why they would do that. So that's kind of the background um, that's really happening, especially in the, you know, the 1860s, the, the 1870s, uh, there'll be a number of, of reasons why there'll be a great migration. So a lot of Americans have ancestors that have come from Scandinavia. So I meet people all the time, you know, who have maybe an ancestor from Sweden or an ancestor from Norway, ancestor from Denmark, ancestor from Finland. Although for us, primarily it's Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, the, the free church. But, uh, you know, those, those folks are coming to the U.S. through Ellis, well, through um, Battery Park originally, and then Ellis Island. And uh, they're settling in Minneapolis and and uh, uh, Chicago and uh, Iowa and Nebraska, these places where there's Scandinavian enclaves, Wisconsin, a uh, number of Norwegians coming to Wisconsin, especially. So you, you have these people coming over and they're um, interested in in uh, creating, you know, uh, churches and uh, they're still committed to those those same uh, principles that they had been committed to in Scandinavia as well. So, so they they begin to practice those here. We we also begin to have what I call kind of a trans -Amer trans American exchange. So, if I can just say something about this, is that um, American influences are going into Scandinavia as well. And at that time, um, the the big the biggest one will be the writings and the sermons of Dwight Lyman Moody, who's an American revivalist. And so a lot of these pietist folks are reading his sermons. Um, Moody has a, a song leader whose name is Ira D. Sankey. They're translating his songs, his gospel songs into Swedish or Norwegian. Actually, I have a Norwegian version up here, Sankey songs. And so they're singing those songs. So it's interesting, there were American influences going there at the same time that a number of Scandinavian um, people are immigrating to the U.S., yeah, that's super interesting. So yeah. um, going back 
to then those early uh, immigrants or the pre-immigrants, mm-hmm. I guess we could say, is they are effectively reacting to the state church. Um, and I, I can just imagine, maybe if you're listening to this, you can imagine if your church experience um, was the community that you're gathering with on Sundays and what have you is a group of people who aren't necessarily believers. In fact, many of them maybe aren't believers. There's you're, there's something that you're kind of missing there that you would that uh, we would want normal Christianity uh, to be. And so, in that way, it's not surprising uh, that they sort of withdraw and start their own uh, sort of small groups or their own mm-hmm. sort of groups outside of the church mm-hmm. uh, that are specifically composed of believers. Um, now, would they have? thought of these as like they're making their own church or would they have thought of these as just their own, just kind of like an additional thing? I know from the reading I did, eventually, Mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, the state um, and the state church kind of came down upon them and and frowned Mm -hmm. upon it and condemned these things. And there was some uh, movement going on there in terms of how that all panned out. But can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So the um, as there was separation and it, it has to do over their convictions generally on these particular matters of of you know who is following jesus who's not so if you if you have a priest or a pastor who's really not about following jesus then there's real reason for a number of these who these more pietistic devout christians to start gathering by themselves but then that becomes uh, a problem from the state standpoint the church and the state standpoint uh toward these groups because they do seem to be dissenters, they are, um, you know, there's a question of what are they, what are they doing and are they undermining kind of the state church system? And so mm-hmm. there, there were uh, conventicle laws against these house meetings and uh, you could be uh, generally, you know, you were thrown in jail uh, for meeting together and reading the Bible, <laughs> which sounds kind of funny, but uh, you know, that's what happens today in, in uh, communist China, other places, uh, you you might be thrown in jail for, I, I have cases, you know, that I've uh, come across and I've written about them, maybe 30 days, you know, in a jail like in Yevla, Sweden, uh, you know, uh, fed on bread and water, you know, something like that, just to discourage um, your, your defiance, I guess, of this sort of thing. But it really didn't, you know, it's it's like the church in China today, too. And though we can't equate these, um, but but whenever there's a state church and and they are enforcing some law, and if you have do if you do have dissenter people based on their biblical convictions and their meeting, uh, you can't really eliminate them entirely. You can somehow only uh, discourage it. And so you know, the mission friends movement or this, the pietists here meeting in conventicles, you know, they continued to, to multiply and spread. And they weren't always forming churches. Uh, many cases, they're, they're just called mission societies. And they were kind of functioning like churches. So, you know, it's kind of hard to, to say. Now, the Baptists were, the Baptists had mission houses. So, you know, if you have Swedish Baptists, they're they have something called a mission or they have a prayer actually it was a prayer house you know which they could get and they could kind of meet in but more of the lutheran pietists so still kind of not quite baptist but you're a lutheran and and wanting to meet separately you would meet 
in a mission house. So that language, actually, the early churches here in the U.S., in Iowa and Minnesota, maybe, you know, Illinois, they they would, they, before they called them church, they actually originally in the 1880s were known as mission houses. So they brought that same language over and uh, they would meet. So if you read the old literature, the period periodicals, they'll talk about meetings at mission houses before the word church uh, is used. So um, that's that was kind of what they were doing. So was it a church? Yeah, it was kind of like a church. Sometimes they actually had communion also. That became an issue because, uh, again, if you had a priest, and you can imagine state church priests could be unbelievers. They could actually be drunkards. You know, they could be kind of corral, you know, like, you know, they, they weren't the most upright moral people. It's hard for us to imagine that, you know, like a, a member of the clergy, a member of, you know, uh, would would actually be, um, you know, a drunkard and, and uh, you know, not believing, but that, that was a reality. And so if you were a Christian and devout and you really were serious and, you know, you went and you have this priest who's serving in the Eucharist or communion and he's, you know, we know what he's, his life is like, you know, people were like, I'm not going to that priest. So they started meeting separately, which, um, and, and even celebrating uh, communion separately. So that was more in Norway than it was in Sweden, but it did, it did happen. Mm-hmm. And I know from the reading I've done, not only mm-hmm. did the, these non-believer believing priests or these priests who themselves didn't, uh, live up to standards not only was that sort of scandalizing but even the fact that you're taking communion with a group of people who are clearly not believers necessarily themselves that was pretty scandalous um and so a lot of this is this uh it gets what's called pietism you've used that term before Mm -hmm. pietism this is a movement that would be beyond just um scandinavia you have other areas where pietism emerges and other denominations that come out of pietism but can you so but the efca would be a pietistic uh, movement in terms of yeah. its origins. Can you tell us just a little bit about what we mean by that? Yeah. So Lutheran Pietism, uh, just to even back up a little bit, um, by the the second generation of Lutherans, so you've got the Protestant Reformation, and the Protestant reformers begin with tr- really trying to articulate a sound theology and trying to win over the Roman Church uh, to that. So uh, when that failed. Uh, to convince the Roman church to reform, then uh, you start having these sort of intramural um, discussions among uh, Lutherans, more reformed people, and you have different groups of of reformed. And they're discussing all kinds of things like the nature of communion and whether it's memorial, whether there's a spiritual presence, whether there's, you know, something, I'll use a big word here, consubstantiation, you know, (laughs) over and against the the, the Catholic view um, so of transubstantiation. So these are technical terms, and that's really kind of what uh, the pietists started saying, you know, you guys are all about uh, articulating Protestant theology, and, and there's no life to it. There's no sort of, you know, piety or pious life, a, a holy life. And so they were about that, and they they accused a number of these um, people dealing with theological disputes 
as um, guilty of, you know, dead orthodoxy, something like that, which I don't know if that was always true, but that was kind of what was put on this certain group of Lutherans. And Pietists were Lutherans who said, you know, we're the true heirs of Martin Luther. So we have both a Lutheran theology. They were drawing a little bit from medieval um, devotional writers like Thomas, um, Thomas Akempis. And so they're, they're pulling some things and, and they're saying, you know, we're, we're about a, a living faith. So we're just not about dead orthodoxy, but we think that people should be converted. They should be born again. That metaphor becomes very popular in the pietist movement. They need to be born again. So, so evangelicals in America, I mean, we're very much the heirs of pietism, this idea mm -hmm. of born again, need for prayer, need for conversion, uh, need to share the gospel with others. So that's what they were, they were about. And so the language uh, that they used at the time was, was pietist, that we are um, committed to a living faith. And it wasn't that they are, they were not uh, academic or interested in theology. They just felt like we don't want to just be about theological argumentation. Uh, we want to be about embracing the full life uh, that's ours in Christ. So that's where that uh, specific term uh, came from. And so that's that's the movement. Now, it does get kind of a bad name later on because um, it's out of a number of this kind of the pietist movement gone, you know, so much toward the heart and feeling that opens the door for what's liberal theology. So you mm -hmm, get mm -hmm. people like Schleiermacher who are coming out of that. And so for some people, pietist is like a bad name in pietism because they attribute it to the beginning of theological liberalism in Germany. Yeah. But uh, in its best, it, it holds together uh, good articulate theological understandings based on scripture and a, a, a life of devotion to Jesus and living that out in a, in a practical way. Yeah. 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 So there definitely were some forms of what, uh, I don't know if we should call it pietism. Maybe it's not true pietism, but at least mm -hmm. what some people think of as pietism or I know for me, there's an association there. Some of that negative association yeah. I have with mm -hmm. it because there are, there can be, on the one hand, it was reacting to what it saw as dead orthodoxy, but there can be a swing then into, like you said, what led to Schleiermacher yeah. and some liberal yeah. theology, yeah. Um, where it's kind of, uh, it's one thing to react to dead orthodoxy. It's another thing to react to theology in general, you know, and yeah. we don't want to do that. But the best form um, of Christianity is going to hold sound theology and functional theology yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah, and so we evangelicalism, gotta, we keep them together. <laughs> yeah, and evangelicalism in general has been the heir of that. The EFCA mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. Scandinavian um, Christians coming out of the Lutheranism, they are yeah. um, not like like there's the German Pietism that kind of yeah. you were talking about, and then there's also yeah. movements that spread that kind of emerge in other European countries as well, and that's sort of yeah. what brings us then to the EFCA. So as we talk about uh, these early immigrants and these early Christians. Um, these free church folks mm -hmm. in the uh, Scandinavian countries. Can we talk a little bit about some of their distinctives and their emphases? Um, like what were some of the beliefs of the early free church movement, some of their um, distinctives, we might say? Yeah, so both both in the European context and then also here, uh, I would say the first is, is uh, 
the need to be born again. So that's going to be leading. I think that's at the top of the list, probably. Yeah. The need for conversion, the one thing needful. So that language is is often right there. And there's there's reasons, but that would be one. There is the uh, a commitment to scripture, the authority of scripture. So originally there wasn't necessarily an articulation of like the inerrancy of scripture. It was more of the authority. So thus saith the Lord or kind of a classical. Um, yeah. And I, I could say the Swedish, but I'll say the English is where stands it written? So it's a little wooden, but where stands it written? Where is it written? That was kind of a watchword. Yeah. Of, What's the uh, Swedish version of it? Uh, vor, um, uh, let's see. Var står det skrivet? The, uh, yeah. var stor, where stands it written? Yeah. yeah and I know I've seen that. I've read that a lot in the literature that comes up. It's kind of this, yeah. some of the, the terms that are like these slogans yeah. um, of the EFCA, the significance of silence being one of them, sort of yeah. making sure we don't, that we, that we major on the majors and minor on the minors, in other words. And yeah. then where stands it written? Kind of like we want to make sure that what we believe is not just based on some tradition we hold to, but actually comes from scripture. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Other emphases or distinctives? Uh, obviously, well, I will, I'll say an ironic spirit, an ironic spirit, meaning, uh, and I, I don't always want to use the word ecumenical, but the idea is that they didn't want to be known as, I referred to this earlier, Lutheran or, or Baptist or Methodist, kind of a particular sect of Protestant Christianity, but they wanted to be known as Christians. So, they relaxed and because of that there's going to be some things that are relaxed like baptism okay becomes relaxed whether it's credo or pedo you know whether that's believer baptism or or infant baptism so because they really wanted to focus on on christ and the gospel and uh, some of the the particulars the adiaphora you know the the lesser things uh they weren't going to focus on so so they're ironic and and with that they find uh, an affinity with people like D.L. Moody or American revivalism, where there's a cooperation of people from Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian traditions. So that, uh, and then also kind of spills over into a cooperative spirit when it comes to the gospel itself. So they are not separatistic, all right? So you you might get other groups that would be more separatistic, but generally the the EFCA is about cooperating with others who are like-minded um, in the community uh, centered around the gospel. So, so that would be, um, uh, so, so yeah, I would say born again, high view of scripture, um, an ironic spirit, and they are congregational also. So um, the experiment coming here too is kind of how do we govern ourselves? And because of the nature of mission societies and whatnot, uh, in Scandinavia, these conventicles, they were kind of used to that. So they really came here and studied the Congregationalists and said, we really like a a congregational form of government where the churches are governing themselves primarily. So, and part of that could have been as well a, a sort of resistance to the state church, more of a hierarchical uh, form of government. So they were protecting themselves. Um, against going uh, back into that. Actually, I have a quote from uh, one of the leaders, J.G. Princell, and uh, he was trained actually as a, as a Lutheran clergyman, and you know he had to sign off on a lot of different Lutheran theology 
like the entire book of Concord, you know, this whole collection of, of writings. And um, But he also advocated having as little ecclesial machinery as possible, meaning organizationally, let's try to have as little as we need uh, so that we can kind of focus on the mission and not be uh, distracted. And one of the statements he said uh, once in, in regards to Lutheran, you know, kind of going back to the, the Lutheran church, he said, once you've had your nose in a vice, you know, you don't want to put it there again. <laughs> so he felt, you know, constricted, um, both theologically, but also I think organizationally in that hierarchy. So here in America, and it kind of fit the, you know, the ethos of America with with our commitment to democracy and independence and self-governance and those kinds of things. So they adopted a congregational. So, you know, commitment to be born again, high view of, of scripture, an ironic spirit, and then uh, how they govern themselves were uh, congregational. And that's kind of that free idea too. So evangelical free, we're self-governing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you talked to, you mentioned this briefly, the, this was something I learned more recently um, that I didn't know about the ESCA before was some of the, um, you talked about the, the transatlantic sort of influences mm -hmm. where it's not just immigrants coming to America, but there's also mm -hmm. American immigrants going to uh, Scandinavia, sort of this cross influence. Um, right. And then with D.L. Moody being a significant mm -hmm. influence because he was a pretty big influence in the Americas, yeah. uh, in the United States, that is, at that time. And so yeah. his theology with, uh, in other words, if folks aren't aware, up until 2019, I believe it mm -hmm. was, the EFC yeah. required premillennialism as one of its commitments. Yeah. Um, that like, It was in the statement of faith that uh, you'd have to sign on to as part of the ESA, and they voted to remove that since that's more of a secondary, um, yeah. if not even tertiary, um, mm -hmm. doctrinal position. So that was kind of a, a peculiarity yeah. in the EFCA because the EFCA has always been major on the majors, minor on the minors, and then there's this statement in there on premillennialism that doesn't really seem to fit that ethos. But that yeah. is sort of explained because dispensationalism, which D.L. Moody held to mm – -hmm. Yeah. Um, and with that, then premillennialism, this is, I'm using these terms, but this is, if you're yeah. not familiar, this is, uh, uh, if the listener's not familiar, this is, these are terms about certain views of the end times. D.L. Mm -hmm. Moody was a proponent of, of those things. And so that I'm assuming is sort of where some of those influences come in the EFCA as well, as mm -hmm. well as I know that as sort of theological liberalism, um, was having its moment and you had the sort of, uh, fundamentalist modernity, Mm -hmm. um, controversy in the early 20th centuries, oftentimes premillennialism was associated with a more conservative view of scripture because it quote unquote took it literally. Um, mm -hmm. And anything that seemed less literal, like a amillennial or postmillennial view was kind of seen with suspicion as being maybe liberal or something. Um, mm -hmm. Is that, is that, is that, is my sense of that correct? And, and what, yeah. how did, how did Dale Moody really, um, yeah, have such an influence on the EFCA as we know it? Yeah, so, so everything I've said up to this point um, in terms of the characteristics of, let's say, the Scandinavian pietists who are immigrating to the United States, they're going to resonate with Moody in many ways. He's uh, a layman. Uh, he's congregational. Uh, he's evangelical. He's preaching the gospel. So there's going to be they're going to resonate with him. And mm -hmm. they he immediately has. So actually, 
literally in the Chicago, in the Chicago fire of 1871, uh, Moody, who's, who's in Chicago at that time, this is before he's famous, you know, he's not gone to England. He does that 1873 to 1875, but he's here and he actually helps uh, Swedish immigrants um, after the fire uh, with clothing, with food, with getting resettled. So he had won over uh, a group already in Chicago uh, early, you know, part of, part of the early sort of immigration to the city. So when he goes, um, you know, overseas, uh, people are already kind of familiar with at least, you know, there's some voices here who are saying, this guy is good, we should listen to him. And uh, so when he goes to England, and it's primarily when he's England, there were Swedes coming down and Norwegians coming down and hearing him, writing up his sermons, translating them, sending them back to periodicals that were publishing them in Scandinavia. So people are reading his sermons. And as I mentioned, even like Sankey's songs were very popular. So we're probably used to now like, uh, you know, the Gettys or Hillsong or these kinds of, you know, and kind of we get the, the latest tunes and, you know, we start singing those. Well, in the 1870s, they were doing the same thing. You know, Sankey and Moody are making it big, you know, by the end of their evangelistic tour in 1875 they're in agriculture hall in london on a weekend with 40,000 people coming to hear them so these guys are making it really big and they're and they're very popular so you can imagine people are are singing there's we actually i have accounts of people who are singing sankey songs while they're they're migrating from scandinavia to come to america to live and they're they're singing sankey songs actually there was a couple of comments that people were upset when they got to Chicago because Moody came back here and he he had a relationship with the church in Chicago, which uh, it still has his name, uh, Moody Memorial Church. It was called Chicago Avenue Church at the time. But uh, some parent um, immigrants from Scandinavia went to the church and were very disappointed that Moody couldn't speak a word of Swedish oh. <laughs> or Norwegian <laughs> because, you know, they'd read his. Uh, oh, I see his material. <laughs> his sermons in periodicals and whatnot, and, and same thing with Sankey. So anyway, um, uh, the short of it is, yeah, there was there was an influence, uh, him going in. And, and so one person in particular who's often uh, identified as an early uh, leader in the EFCA, the Free Church here, is Frederick Franzen. Uh, both influential among Norwegians and Swedes. So Frederick Franzen was actually the first missionary sent out from Moody's church. So he actually was discipled by Moody, noted Moody's disciple, he's a Swede. And of course he helps plant some churches here in the United States, in Nebraska and Denver, Colorado. This is like in the 1880s, but then he goes over in 1881 back to Sweden. So he's taking kind of Moody's ideas back. So as part of that transatlantic, you get people coming here, you get ideas, and you get re, you know, migrants are going back. You get the boomerang, boomerang effect. Maybe you know, fifteen percent. The estimate is fifteen percent of of uh, immigrants from Scandinavia to the U.S. in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties actually went back. So they got here, didn't like it, but often they were influenced. So a woman like Catherine Jewell, right? She was Norwegian, went back and started. Uh, churches and kind of the movement there that became today, it's the Norwegian Covenant, which would be a sister uh, denomination to the free church here. So you get all, a lot of this uh, this cross-pollinization, this, this transatlantic uh, movement. Um, but that's happened too. You know, you had referred to pietists. 
Um, you know, you have German pietists that are influencing early congregationalists in this country in, in New England. Um, so like with the Cottons and Mathers, you get uh, influence, like they're reading August Hermann Franke and Philip Jacob Spainer. So so it's it's we've always kind of had this transatlantic movement of ideas, uh, I- including religious ideas. And, and so that that very much happens with the, the free church um, mm. here as well. And one of maybe one of the um, practices or emphasis uh, we maybe haven't highlighted as much yet is just uh, the like the missional um, impulse of the mm-hmm. of these immigrants as they come to America. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about that as well? Uh, just maybe some of their activities, yeah. some of the things that they yeah. devoted themselves to. Yeah, very much uh, back to that idea of conversion or being born again. So they love evangelism. Uh, the the pioneers in the 1880s, 1890s, they love to share Jesus. And migration, what we even know today about diaspora movements, so kind of I'll wear my missiological hat here today, but diaspora movements are always typically more open to the gospel than static movements. So a diaspora means, you know, people are dispersed. So whenever there's a migration, uh, there's often an openness. I think there's kind of an unsettling and there's a newness and a new context. And so uh, we know this, uh, this is basically a missiological. We actually have a, a course being taught here at Trinity next week on diaspora and um, as a modern uh, missiological issue. So when people are moving. So when Scandinavians came here, you know, they're much more open to to the gospel and there's kind of a reshuffling socially, culturally. And so preachers uh, and the free church began mostly with itinerant preachers. So much like the Methodist movement, like circuit writers, we don't have resident pastors. You know, you just have these, you know, small, poor communities and you have 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 people coming together. And, you know, they're being served originally by uh, itinerant pastors. This is well before resident pastors are able to be employed. And so uh, they're sharing Jesus, you know, they're having meetings, uh, gospel uh, meetings, proclaiming the gospel. So you have these preachers that are going around to various uh, immigrant enclaves uh, to hold meetings, and they're seeing fruit, you know, considerable fruit. So that's actually one of the reasons why uh, with the need for, so so with people coming to faith here in communities, and it, we're talking in Wisconsin, we're talking Minnesota, we're talking Illinois, we're talking Nebraska, where a lot of Scandinavians are, uh, are locating. Uh, with the fruit comes the need for, you know, a, a church, a pastor. And uh, with that also will come a need for a school, you know, to mm-hmm. prepare pastors to serve more as residents. So there's kind of a tipping point where you kind of move from mostly served by itinerant pastors to some churches who have the means to hire and employ a resident pastor. And then you get more residents pastors and then kind of the need for itinerants uh, begins to, to go down. Yeah. Well, let's then talk more about some of those forming of institutions. Um, Mm -hmm. Eventually you had the Norwegian and the Danish they formed an association, and then you yeah. had this this sweet uh, the Swedish immigrants mm-hmm. that they were an association. 
Um, and eventually those associations came together and merged in 1950 mm-hmm. to form what is today the EFCA. So yeah. first of all, why did those groups emerge even on their own? What was sort of the impetus behind yeah. associating? Yeah, yeah, it's I think typical of about every ethnic group that comes, you're gonna gravitate toward people of your language and culture. So that out of necessity, and there's often economic necessity too, to be around people who speak your language and can employ you and whatnot. So uh, that's happened, you know, we could talk about every different ethnic group, whether that's Polish or Italian or whatever. So the same would be true of Scandinavians coming into an American context. And um, there was similar to today, chain migration. So, you know, an uncle comes and then a niece comes and lives with the uncle for a while and gets established. And then, you know, uh, a brother comes. So you you have that happening. So churches provided a, a, a place for, for worship, spiritual, in the, the American context. But also, you know, there's a cultural benefit. Just like today, we would have um, Hispanic churches. Uh, we have... Um, you know, Chinese churches, uh, Korean language churches. So all of these, and it's almost the same phenomenon that's being repeated. So that's what I'll be writing about hmm. in in my book that um, we are, a, it's an immigrant experience that's been repeated. And so uh, that that is a reality of, of coming together and being being with people. But with that, you know, you can imagine if you have a niece who comes over to live with an uncle and the un- uncle has been born again, he's a part of a, a free church in, in um, uh, you know, in Minnesota and, and his niece comes and she doesn't know Jesus. She's still kind of a state church Lutheran. You know, he's like inviting her over and maybe, a you know, an itinerant preacher comes through and he invites her to the meeting and she comes to faith in Jesus. I mean, she's kind of in a, a, a state and a place in her life where where faith in Jesus uh, becomes real. And so she accepts Christ. So that, that happened really over and over and over with these early churches. Um, so they're providing something and... Um, uh, but very much committed to to the gospel. I I, I do say this too. They, they'll be very receptive. It's interesting. Uh, there's a number of Scandinavians who will come to this country. They'll be here for about five to ten years, and they become missionaries to some other part of the world. Uh, the Free Church, probably second to the Moravians from the Hernhut community, are going to be sending. Uh, missionaries. We are, we've been historically a mission sending agency. So I think it goes back to this high view of scripture, need to be born again. Um, they're, they're already familiar with one culture. They're, they're, they're able to navigate um, into an American context, but we'll have people be, they'll be going to China. They'll be going to South uh, Africa. They're going to South America. Uh, so we see that happen um, over and over. I have a saying that uh, converted Vikings make good missionaries. <laughs> so yeah, you kind of you get the idea because Vikings are used to kind of going off around the world, marauding, you know, and raping yeah. and pillaging, and and being very concerned about what's going on in the rest of the world, not so much about Scandinavia. Well, when uh, when Norwegians and Danes and 
Swedes get converted to Jesus and they've had a, you know, one transition into a culture, they're very much open. Uh, I, it, that's a fascinating study. I mean, I just, hmm. uh, I've been working on it and uh, looking at our mission movement. So that's very typical. People will be here for five to seven years and be called uh, by the Lord to some other part of the world. And uh, they're supported by these burgeoning churches uh, they don't have much money, but they go by faith and and eventually. Um, so Frederick Franson, I referred to him earlier. He starts a, a movement, the Scandinavian Alliance Mission, which is today team based in Carroll Stream, Illinois. And uh, that actually was the mission agency of the Norwegian Danish Free Church. Uh, but he started that. He was working with Hudson Taylor and they were uh, China Inland Mission and mobilizing a thousand missionaries to China. And so he was a part of that. So we sent a lot of people, you know, a lot of young um, Danes, Norwegians, and Swedes, you know, in their 20s, 30s. They might have been in the, the U.S. for five to 10 years, and they answered the call to be a, an overseas missionary. And uh, I've followed and studied a lot of these, and many of them are still buried uh, in China. They're buried. Well, I mean, you know, they died and got buried there. So, mm. so they, they had full careers. They, yeah. they served uh, their entire life uh, for the for the rest of, you know, their, their entire career there and, and died and are still buried there today. And when these uh, different churches uh, mm -hmm. came together to form a, yeah. in the association of like the yeah. Swedish association and the yeah. Norwegian and, and uh, Danish one, was that largely, if I'm if I'm, I'm remembering correctly, was that largely for the sake of how do we work together to send out yeah. more missionaries yeah. or yeah. what was sort of that? Yeah, good point. So I think that was probably part of your question originally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, good point. There, there are always three things for any, any reason why a group comes together. And even though we would resist historically the word denomination, it goes back to that idea that they wanted to be as, you know, identified as Christians without, you know, being... Sure. You know, Baptist. So so sometimes we talk about us being a movement, but uh, there were really three uh, reasons. Um, the first is, I'll say, cooperation in mission. So to send a missionary and, and you know, the first one was a woman to uh, Utah Territory. And the second was a, a man to Utah Territory. And then the third was missionary to Canton, China, Hans Jensen von Quelen. So to do that, though, with these very small churches, no single church could support the missionary. Right. So you have to have cooperation between churches. So that's mm -hmm. why, um, even though we have self-governing churches or independent, we've always from the beginning seen the need for an interdependency that we, we cooperate with one another. And so multiple churches coming together could support a missionary. Um, overseas. So that that continues to happen. So the first is mission, primarily home and foreign mission. So you have to cooperate as churches in order to uh, send that. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleased, you know, that we've had that view of being about the Great Commission and sending missionaries into parts of the world uh, that there was no gospel witness in, in establishing churches. Uh, but the, and the, the second is um, in the area of ordination or licensure or credentialing. Um, that's also a need. So if you have independent churches and we have quotes from some of the early 
uh, discussions on this. Uh, one was a guy named John Martinson who came to a meeting. This is in 1884, kind of the founding, what's often attributed as the founding meeting. But right. he said, you know, uh, you know, we have we have an itinerant, you know, who comes here, you know, who's a traveling preacher, and he says, you know, I, I want to preach in your pulpit, and uh, so he said, so they, yeah, okay, we will. We'll let you preach in our pulpit, and he said, well, you know our souls are blessed. And then, you know, the next week somebody else comes and he says, um, Hey, I want to preach in your church. And they say, okay, we'll let you do that. But John Martinson said, but he turns out to be a scoundrel (laughs) and, you know, he's, (laughs) he's not accurate in how he's teaching the Bible. And Mm -hmm. he's just, you know, like there, and John Martinson, this is in 1884. He says, you know, we need to talk. We need to communicate about who's filling our pulpits. Right. Yeah. And and so they they realized they had to start to have some system of vetting people who were suitable uh, for for public ministry, and they wanted to communicate. Well, that really is is the birth of the need for uh, credentialing of pastors or making sure we have some system to vet those who are coming into our churches so both theologically and character and that's really what ordination Mm -hmm. is about so you have the need for for cooperative mission among individual churches that brings them together to cooperate and then you have this idea of we need to communicate well um, if we are kind of in fellowship and we are uh, having people uh, coming around we, we need to be able to to know who is really well suited uh doctrinally as well as in terms of character for public ministry which is the idea of of a credential uh like an ordination certificate or a licensure certificate and then the third is education so cooperation because we can't each each uh church can't educate somebody they felt fully we need to cooperate in education and having like a school. So they started very modestly with that, holding uh, 10 week uh, courses uh, here in Chicago. That was in 1897, which really begins uh, what is today the you know Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School. And so it was a matter of, so, so those three are always true of really any denomination. You have to cooperate for mission, you have to cooperate for education and you have to cooperate for credentialing uh, or uh, ordination. Yeah. So th- that's what brings them together. Uh, and, 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 you know, fellowship, but that's the, the work. That's kind of the tasks that they're yeah. always engaged in. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as we kind of come to a close then, yeah. um, how is the EFCA uh, different today? What, or what are, what are some of the ways that the EFCA expresses itself um, and is embodied today as we kind of move into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll go back and this will be a part of my book. Uh, so if the free church, you know, marks its beginning at 1884, which it was a soft beginning, I would say, but that's historically what we've said, 1884. So there was a, a centennial anniversary in 1984, and it was held at, in at Ames, Iowa. Um, there at the university and um, in, in a large meeting hall. I don't know how many it, it held. And the president of the time, his name was Tom McDill. And uh, so he, which is interesting too, that was one of the first sort of non-Scandinavian names to ever be a president in the free mm-hmm. church. So 
Uh, that was symbolic in itself. But he, he said, you know, for the last hundred years, 1884 to, to 1984, we've been primarily Scandinavian, you know, first generation, second generation, third generation. And he said, going forward, we need to reflect more of who, who America is. And we need to look more like heaven. So that was kind of his challenge. And really, that was um, a defining moment in the life of the EFCA, where we became much more intentional about church planting uh, among African-American communities, establishing African-American churches. Uh, we became intentional about uh, ministry among Hispanic in Hispanic communities and raising up pastors uh, to plant and to pastor, shepherd uh, Hispanic congregations. Uh, we were much more intentional as well about uh, Chinese, Korean churches. So, you know, today 10% of our congregations are ethnic or multi-ethnic. And that really came from that, uh, that call. So we talk about us being a, a church um, that we are, you know, we're seeking the transformation of, uh, of churches um, and that we would rep represent all, all people. And so in the last uh, 40 years, I guess, is that right? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, we've been committed uh, to doing that. Um, it hasn't always been uh, the best effort, uh, meaning there's been, you know, some two steps forward, one step back in ways. So there's there's reasons for that. But in my research, I'm finding out the particulars of, of why that is. <laughs> Uh, you have to, you know, empower people and bring people in and um, and listen and do well and and truly be partners. And so that's kind of been that's sometimes a little bit harder than than it sounds. But uh, we've we've been doing that. So that's really, I think, who we are today. So we have uh, a number of of uh, newer churches and we would, I think, be reflecting more of of America, we're reflecting more of our context. And so I think that that's something that I'm happy about as well uh, in terms of kind of the transition that we've taken. And, and what this does, it brings us full circle now. And that's what my book is gonna be about is because with, with various, especially immigrant groups, let's take Hispanic, you know, they're kind of going through the same first gen, 1.5, second gen, third generation issues that the Scandinavians did, you know, 100 years ago. And, and actually, some of the same phenomena applies. And so we can say, truly, we are a church of immigrants. Uh, we are, you know, uh, not perfect, but, you know, we are a family. And uh, we're still committed. If I can say anything at the end, I know we're, we're coming to a close. It goes back to what you asked me at the beginning. I, I think we're still committed to those same things. We're committed to the gospel. We have a high view of scripture. We're committed to mission. Uh, we, we're still committed to local churches governing uh, themselves, but yet uh, it's not a fierce independent spirit, but there's a, a sense of interdependence that we would have in cooperating um, in the areas that we've been talking about too. So in many ways, we still are the same. I don't see a, you know, a big, big shift if anything, you know, we, we could use revival, <laughs> we could use some renewal, but in many ways, we're still committed uh, to the to the same things that that uh, were in place when, when the EFCA began. Yeah. 
Well, great. Thanks so much for um, joining me today. It's been it's been great having you on to talk about these things. Um, I'm looking forward to when your book comes out. Again, that's Evangelical Heritage. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you.